From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Democratic Congressman Jason Crow of Aurora joins us live to talk about his goals for his second term, as well as division amongst Colorado's congressional delegation and security at the U.S. Capitol. Then some relatively good news. Colorado seems to have avoided the predicted wave of post-holiday COVID-19 cases. But please keep that mask on. We are not out of the woods yet. And how does studying our country's history give us tools to understand our present? Colorado history professors help us place these tumultuous times in context. Plus, a third-generation skydiver is on a mission to educate and inspire and get more women to jump out of airplanes. A lot of people think of us as just adrenaline junkies and crazy people, but it's very far from the truth. The largest source of support for Colorado Public Radio comes from members across our state. I'm from Denver. Aurora. Glenwood Springs. Grand Junction. Boulder. Pilots Ranch. With your donation, you connect your city to nonprofit journalism, to inspiring stories, and you connect your community to a wide range of music that fills our daily life. These recent months have been tough for everyone, but month after month, donors continue to step up. Thank you for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. The U.S. swore in a new president yesterday, but many problems that began in the previous administration remain, including a deadly pandemic, a struggling economy, and a politically fractured public. Democratic Congressman Jason Crow of Aurora joins us today to talk about these issues and how they affect Colorado. Congressman, welcome. Hi. Good morning, Avery. You attended the inauguration of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris yesterday. Describe what you felt in that moment. Well, it was a moment of uh, great reflection for me. My my political journey started uh, about four years ago when Donald Trump was elected and uh, decided to jump in uh, to uh, public service and to to help uh, defend our democracy. Uh, Then you uh, fast forward to just two weeks ago, sitting at the very same place where uh, you know, a, a riotous mob was attacking me and other members of Congress and trying to derail our democracy. Uh, and then uh, sitting there on that platform with uh, other members, Republicans and Democrats, to usher in a peaceful transition of power. So it was pretty overwhelming uh, and pretty surreal. Uh, but at the same time, there was really no time for celebration because, you know, we are a, a nation in crisis and we had to get right back to work. And you mentioned the stark contrast between the inauguration and the Capitol riots just weeks earlier. Are there still any major security concerns after those riots, given that nothing major has happened during the inauguration? Yeah, fortunately, it was a very smooth and and peaceful inauguration yesterday, but security concerns remain. I mean, the the fact of the matter is uh, Donald Trump has radicalized some of his fringe supporters. We have uh, uh, you know, these self-styled militia groups and um, anti-government groups and uh, conspiracy theorists uh, who, you know, deeply have believed these lies that they have been told, uh, and they've been radicalized. And I think we have to take that very seriously, and I have to uh, make sure that we are working with uh, our law enforcement agencies and, and others to uh, address any threats. And I think that's something that we're going to have to address in, in not just the months, but the years ahead. You voted last week to impeach former President Trump a second time. Now that he is officially out of office, is a Senate conv- conviction going to make a difference? Well, I think it always makes a difference to stand up for our democracy and the rule of law. You know, I've long said that the time is always right to do those things. You know, we can't have an attack on 
not just the, the Capitol building and uh, members of Congress, but truly an attack on our democracy. I mean, what, the, what that mob was trying to do was stop the certification of the election. Uh, and, and that mob was incited by Donald Trump, and it can't go without some accountability and consequence. I think that would be sending exactly the wrong message to not just the American people, but you know, autocrats and, and uh, you know, dictators and despots around the world to let that go unchecked. So uh, we have to do what we have to do. And at the same time, we're going to uh, make our, our top priority addressing the pandemic and the economic crisis and the climate crisis uh, and uh, the racial justice movement uh, that we have to continue to push forward because uh, we no longer have the luxury of picking one or two things. Uh, we have to do it all and we have to do it all well. And you say this can't go without consequence. Specifically, what is the consequences if Trump is already out of office? Well, I think, uh, you know, one of the obvious ones is obviously sending a very strong message about accountability by uh, convicting him, uh, but also prohibiting him from holding federal office. I mean, he is a, a danger to our domestic security, to our national security, uh, to the uh, well-being and welfare of the American people. Uh, and I don't believe he should be allowed to hold elected office. Uh, you know, he, he has proven that time and time again in, in his presidency, but never more so than on January 6th when he incited uh, a violent insurrection against our government. And to be clear, we should say that if the Senate convicts, then the Senate can hold another vote to ensure that he doesn't hold federal office again. Last week during the impeachment vote, he tweeted that some of your, or rather you tweeted that some of your Republican colleagues in the House were afraid to vote yes because they were receiving death threats. What does this say about the state of political divisions in our country? Yeah, our political divisions are deep. Uh, they're very deep and they're very real. And we have to address that. I mean, that is uh, as I've long said, that is the leadership challenge of the moment, is how do we overcome those divisions so that we can bring people together and actually get things done and, and meet the, the crises that we face. Uh, and you know, my Republican colleagues, I had a lot of discussions with many of them, that you know, many of whom have become friends and I've done a lot of uh, important work with uh, here in Washington the last couple of years and had a lot of very um, uh, you know, personal heart-to-hearts with them in the lead-up to the impeachment vote, and, and that's what they conveyed to me. A lot of them felt uh, scared for their physical safety. And, uh, you know, my response to them not to be unsympathetic was welcome to the club. You know, that, that's the way many of us have felt for a very long time. And we've also been warning you. We've been telling you that this is what's going to happen and that this was the, the ultimate culmination of Donald Trump's presidency. And uh, they, many of them actually agreed with that. They said, yeah, you have been saying that. And we didn't think it would get this bad. So, you know, that's the price of leadership. You know, leadership is not easy. It's hard. Uh, it comes at, uh, a, at personal sacrifice and it comes at risk if you're doing it right. And if you have your motivations in the right place and people have to do what's in the best interest of the country, uh, not their own political interest. It sounds like you may be saying that you see a new sense of bipartisanship at the Capitol. Do you sense new unity under the new administration? Well, I think it's too early to tell. Um, I, I certainly am resolved to do so uh, because, um, you know, that's the only way that we're going to move our country forward and address these crises. I mean, and President Biden said that yesterday because he knows that. You just think about the tone and the tenor and uh, the words that he spoke. Uh, he understands, as many of us do, that the only way that we're going to address these crises is if we can find a way to come together. Uh, no one party, no one group of people is going to do it on their own. Uh, we have to figure out a way to, to unify. Uh, and I thought yesterday was um, a, a good opportunity for us to hit the reset button, to say, OK, let's all take a step back. Let's lower the temperature in the room and let's figure this out. So I do believe we have that opportunity. 
Uh, and I think it's going to be done, you know, member to member, neighbor to neighbor, you know, person to person. Uh, I've long spoke about the need for uh, beer diplomacy. You know, we're not going to solve this uh, in large discussions or in, in groups. Uh, you solve it person to person, sitting down and figuring out how you can uh, do something with somebody. You have publicly criticized your colleague Lauren Boebert, who represents Colorado's third congressional district, for what you called her dangerous rhetoric and even called her a fool to other media outlets. Do you think that she should resign? I think we're going to do an investigation to determine the facts of what happened leading up to the January 6th insurrection. Um, I, I obviously have very deep concerns, and I've been pretty honest about that. I think if people have learned uh, something about me, they know that I speak my mind and I, I don't uh, hold back on issues of values and morality. And I have very deep and grave concerns about Ms. Bobert. That is true. Uh, and I do believe that her rhetoric uh, helped incite uh, the insurrection on January 6th. So what we're going to do uh, is we're going to conduct an investigation, and there's already investigations that are going on. There's a GAO investigation. There's going to be House investigations. There are criminal investigations going on by the FBI. And we're going to get the facts, because that's the way it works in America. Uh, you get the facts, and then you apply those facts to available remedies, and we see what's, what's appropriate. So that's the process that we're going to go through. The first bill you introduced when you were elected two years ago would eliminate political donations made by nonprofit organizations that do not have to disclose their donors. You introduced it again this session. What are the chances of it passing this time around? Well, I, I'm uh, an eternal optimist, Avery. You know, I wouldn't be here in this job if I didn't think we could get big things done. Uh, and uh, so long as I think we can, I'm going to continue to push it. And, you know, this was the first bill, my End Dark Money Act. This was the first bill I introduced uh, last Congress when I first came to Congress. And it's the first bill I'm introducing this Congress. And here's why. If you want to change uh, the culture of Washington, if you want to actually start getting big things done, you have to clean up the system. you got to end the influx of this dark money and these super PACs that's so corrosive and toxic to our political system. Uh, and that applies to health care. It reply, applies to gun violence. It applies to uh, addressing the climate crisis. You apply it to every major challenge we face. You've got to turn off the spigot of dark money into Washington and into our politics. And that's why I'm going to continue to make this my first bill until we get it done. And President Biden has made it clear tackling the pandemic is his first priority, and he wants to tackle pandemic relief immediately. What have you seen in the president's proposed package that you think would most immediately benefit Colorado? Well, uh, testing and vaccination um, distribution. I mean, by every measure, vaccination distribution and and the conduct of, uh, of vaccinations has not gone well. It just hasn't. We are way behind where we need to be right now. Uh, And, uh, you know, it's a tragedy, uh, like so many other tragedies of the last couple of years. So we have to fix that and we have to fix it quickly. And the things that the Biden administration are are doing, things like opening up more testing centers, having a massive influx of healthcare professionals, uh, opening up the eligibility criteria for vaccinations, uh, vastly increasing our testing capacity and invoking the Defense Production Act, which, by the way, we should have done 11 months ago when we knew this crisis was coming. All of those things uh, are things that are going to make a a big difference. But, you know, we also have to be honest, too. Uh, And, uh, you know, Joe Biden is a very honest man. And he said, you know, this is going to get harder before it gets better. And that's the truth. You know, that's what the healthcare professionals and and, uh, scientists and others are telling us, uh, that the trajectory is not uh, favorable for us. It's going to get harder before it gets better. But we are making the changes right now uh, to get us to where we need to be in the months ahead.
And I want to talk a little bit about the stimulus package. Would you support the possibility of more direct payment stimulus money? Yes, I would. I mean, here, here's the bottom line. You know, the things that I just talked about regarding vaccination and testing and addressing the health crisis, um, that's going to take some time uh, because it, it was deferred for so long. I mean, the things that uh, we started to do, you know, at noon yesterday with uh, the signing of executive orders when President Biden took office should have been done uh, in March and April of last year, but they weren't. So now we have to do them and they're going to take some time to take an effect. Um, our businesses, our families can't wait. You know, we have to make sure we're extending the eviction moratorium, that we're getting more money for small businesses. Uh, one of the other things that the, the Biden plan does is it allocates a, a substantial amount of money to schools so we can actually retrofit and get schools uh, to a safe place, uh, get the infrastructure put in place so we can open up our schools because it is really hard to open up our businesses and have people go back to work if our kids are still at home. Uh, we have to be able to open up schools first so that we can get our kids back into school. And, and that's for their uh, health and, and benefit and, and mental, you know, mental health as well. Uh, and, and then we can open up the economy. So these things are all tied to one another. Uh, and, and the plan that uh, the president rolled out recognizes that. Another issue, last week, the outgoing Trump administration announced that Space Command headquarters would move from Colorado to Huntsville, Alabama. As a member of the Armed Services Committee, is there anything you could do to reverse the decision? Yeah, I'm working with uh, uh, Senator Bennett, Senator Hickenlooper, uh, Doug Lamborn, uh, and uh, community leaders and others, uh, and we are going to be pushing back on that decision. You know, we have some very deep concerns about the politics that played into that decision, uh, and um, uh, we're going to follow up. You know, we're obviously going to advocate for Colorado whenever we have the opportunity to, but even more so than that, uh, we can't have national security and defense decisions being made based on politics. That sets a terrible precedent. It's bad for our national security. It's bad for our troops. Uh, so we're going to do what's necessary to shine a light on this process. Uh, I actually had a personal discussion with um, uh, Lloyd Austin, uh, who's the, the nominee for Secretary of Defense, which I hope uh, he will be confirmed in the next 24 hours. Uh, and I actually raised this issue with him. Uh, he told me that he would uh, be looking into it and they would take a, um, a hard look at the process uh, and uh, restart it if that's what the facts show. So uh, we are working hard to make sure that um, this is done right. What are you hearing from your constituents about what they need specifically? Well, they need us to have leadership to get through the pandemic and to have economic uh, aid and business aid. You know, I, I talk to folks all the time and businesses are closing right and left. And I'm not concerned for the big companies, right, the big corporations, the businesses. They're largely doing just fine. I'm really concerned for the mom and pop shops. You know, I sit on the small business committee. I'm, I'm the only member of Congress from Colorado that's in the small business committee. So I've spent uh, a lot of time the past year trying to get aid to our small businesses. And these are largely businesses of 10 or fewer employees. You know, these are, you know, the bakers on the corner, the, the seamstresses, uh, uh, seam you know, the, the, the small restaurants, the others who, if they close, uh, that is not just a huge blow to our economy, but it would fundamentally change the character of our community. I mean, because these are the businesses where we spend our lives, our time, uh, where we uh, have our memories of family. So we have to save them and we have to save them fast. So, uh, that's what I'm hearing, and, and I'm going to work really hard to get them the aid that they need so that when we get out of this pandemic, those businesses are still around uh, to um, employ folks, uh, create our, you know, our, our, our strong economy, and help us have a, a vibrant community. 
Congressman, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. Congressman Jason Crow represents Aurora and parts of Adams and Douglas counties. Colorado, unlike many other states, dodged a post-holiday coronavirus wave. How did that happen? CPR health reporter John Daly joins us now to explore that question. Hi, John. Hi, Avery. John, the level of worry about the holidays was high heading into the holiday season. Remind us the pandemic situation in Colorado around Thanksgiving. Well, for sure, the level of anxiety was high. You'll recall at the start of December, almost 2,000 Coloradans were hospitalized with COVID-19. That was a record. But hospitalizations have dropped steadily to a bit above 700 now. Other metrics are also down. And here's another key thing. On one day, December 9th, 80 people died with the disease. On January 9th, that number dropped to 14. Those numbers really do tell this story. And that's so much better than other states like California, where things are just dire. So how did Colorado do it? Well, no one is exactly sure, but there are a lot of theories. I spoke with Elizabeth Carlton. She's an associate professor at the CU Anschutz Medical Campus and a member of the state's COVID-19 modeling team. So if you look at the number of people in the hospital with COVID-19 relative to Colorado's population, we're doing really well. We're doing much better than a lot of other states. Carlton says, based on what researchers understand about the virus, it's a combination of policy and behavior that leads to changes in transmission. Okay, let's break those things down. What policy moves were made? Well, think back to the weeks after Labor Day. The pandemic had been essentially manageable through the summer after a scary spring spike. Then it roared out of control. Transmission, cases, hospitalizations, and soon deaths all took off. It was then Governor Jared Polis and his public health team moved a number of the state's most populous counties to more restrictive measures, red on the state's color-coded dial system. That signaled to Coloradans things were getting bad. Of course, those restrictions have been tough on the economy, hitting hard restaurants and businesses like Jim. I also recall a lot of messages starting before Thanksgiving, don't let your guard down. Absolutely. The governor, along with local, state, and national health leaders, urged families to stay home and avoid Thanksgiving travel. By early December, vaccines were on the way, and they essentially re-upped the advice that masks and distancing were the best way to control the virus for months to come. So apparently people listened? Well, it appears so, though the data is a bit sketchy. I talked to an academic who tracks the impact of mobility on epidemiological trends and transmission for the state's modeling team. Essentially, that's done by following movement via apps on phones through anonymized geolocated data. Here's Jude Baham, an assistant professor at Colorado State University. You know, my assessment is fairly proactive moves by the state probably mitigated the worst case scenarios that we were looking at. So he studies folks moving around. What do we know about that? Okay, for one, consider air travel from December 20th through January 3rd. More than 572,000 passengers went through TSA checkpoints at Denver International Airport. That compares to more than 1 million during the same time frame the year prior. That's according to DIA. 
And that represents a 43% decline in traffic. That is a big drop. What do we know about ski resorts? Modeling research shows visits to the state's six ski counties, their resorts and businesses, were down about 50% from the year before. Of course, the mountains haven't had a ton of snow, plus there's restrictions that have been put in place by resorts themselves to limit the spread, and that may have played a role as well. What about other locations? I'm thinking indoor locations people would normally visit regularly. Well, mobility data from Denver, for example, shows that over the course of the pandemic, those visits are down. Trips to key sectors of the economy like groceries, restaurants, bars, retail, hotels, those have all dropped compared to 2019. People's visits to those locations are highly responsive to health restrictions and the overall metrics of the virus that people are following. In the midst of the holiday season, Colorado's governor had enough confidence in the direction of the numbers that he actually allowed counties across the state to reinstitute some limited indoor dining at restaurants. Have we seen an impact from that? It's hard to say for sure, but for example, Mesa County was the first to debut the so-called five-star restaurant program. It allowed some limited dining. They did see a little bump in case counts there, even as cases were falling statewide. Hospitals are very full there, with ICUs running at about 90% of capacity. Is it because indoor dining resumed there earlier than the rest of the state? We, you know, we don't have that data, and we can't say for sure. The public health director has been vocal in explaining that unemployment is also a public health challenge and that restaurants needed to reopen to make money. Balancing those things has been the trick throughout this pandemic. And what about masks? We have heard a lot of advice about masking up. Again, the data is a bit squishy, but the best information from one national group is that Coloradans say they do wear masks in public more than 75% of the time, and that's higher than many other states. We have one local health department that also tracks mask compliance, and it found even higher numbers than that. What are you hearing from frontline providers about this post-holiday surge that never arrived? Deep and profound relief. Uh, instead of seeing the much-feared surge, it's been more of a trickling of patients coming in. In one hospital, they described it like one or two a day rather than dozens or dozens. Looking ahead, obviously Colorado is not out of the woods yet. For sure. You know, we're still seeing the virus spreading. I spoke with Sunita Sharma. She's a critical care medicine doctor at CU Anschutz. Uh, she says with the virus coming and Coloradans' efforts, there's light at the end of the tunnel, but... I don't want people to give up that level of vigilance because I think that's what's keeping our numbers in check right now. She says, don't forget around the U.S. the pandemic is as bad as it's been. And for most of us, vaccines are still months away. John, thank you so much for your insight. You bet. CPR health reporter John Daly, who's tracking cases of COVID-19 in Colorado. In the next half hour, we'll get some historical context on the presidential impeachment and the transition of power. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. In 2012, Colorado had a huge wildfire season, and the state government formed a task force to learn lessons and plan a response. 
But last year, more than twice as many acres burned, and there's been little action on many problems the government identified. Those elected officials were also being contacted by lobbyists. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis from the CPR News Climate Team. Listen this week as we look into the backstory and solutions for the new wildfire reality in Colorado. And find our coverage at CPR.org. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. Following the deadly riot at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, hundreds of historians and constitutional scholars signed their names to a letter calling for the second impeachment of President Donald Trump. The letter said he violated his oath of office by fomenting violence against Congress and seeking to subvert constitutional democracy. It also called Trump a clear and present danger to the country's democracy and national security. The House did impeach Trump, and the Senate is expected to hold a trial soon. Two professors of early American history at CU Boulder signed that letter. It just so happens they've been married for 40 years. They join us from their home to talk about impeachment and this particular transition of power in the context of U.S. history. Virginia Anderson and Fred Anderson, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Thanks for asking. A colleague sent you both the letter shortly after a pro-Trump mob attacked the Capitol, and your colleague asked you to sign it. What did you weigh when you decided to put your names on that letter? Well, the um, colleague sort of suggested we look at it and not ask us to sign it so much. But, I, you know, I think the thing that horrified us and, and many other historians is the fact that this was an unprecedented event where a sitting president of the United States was, was obviously violating his oath by fomenting an insurrection against a legitimate election uh, based on a lie. And nearly... So, oh, go ahead. It, no, so it, it, it took us only about a minute to each of us independently just think, well, yeah, we should sign that. It, it, it's it just... It's, it's simply to say that the, the truth of what had happened... Um, as it seemed to us, and um, was that he needed to be rebuked. And nearly 1,500 historians signed on to that letter. And self-flattery aside, why do you think an organized statement from people who teach and study history is an important one for Congress and the public to hear? Well, again, I'll, I'll start here. This event was unprecedented, but it also came out of, it didn't come out of nowhere. Um especially with the white supremacist elements of the riot, what it did is, is expose what has been, unfortunately, a sort of deep vein of, of racism and other problems in American history. And they're not going to go away, even if, even if Trump is impeached and, and not permitted to uh, hold public office again. Um, I'm reminded of a statement that President Biden made at the uh, coronavirus commemoration or the, for the victims uh, the day before the inauguration, where he said, to heal, we must remember. Well, historians are professional rememberers, and we need to understand, again, that's a sort of deep context out of which this came before we can fix it and prevent it from ever happening again. I really like that idea of historians as professional rememberers. I want to get into that context more in just a bit. First, Trump is the first president to be impeached twice. What is the potential impact of that kind of legacy? Um, <clears throat> well, his, his legacy will be uh, 
obviously marked by this. We have no idea what will happen, of course, as a consequence of the second impeachment. But um, it, it does seem as if there's a, uh, um, a historic shift in progress. And our, our I, I should just say that this, that our concern is that the impeachment will create a kind of a unified notion of the event um, of the 6th of January. In other words, that um, there are thousands and thousands of, of uh, pieces of information out there floating around that uh, are going to be d difficult to form into a narrative. And for future historians, future Americans, looking at this event, it will be important to establish now within you know, recent memory of the event, a, a kind of sense of narrative of, this, of the story of the day and, and of the president's responsibility in that. And so as you sort of ramble on, but oh, that's, that's important to us. That's an important perspective. And as you look at the way that the narrative is being shaped right now, if the Senate actually convicts Trump, that would be the first time an impeached president is convicted. Do you see important differences or similarities between this moment and other times a president was impeached and about to face a Senate trial? Well, the important difference is that he's that President Trump is no longer in office, and and that the principal outcome of a of a Senate trial that would convict is uh, the possibility that he would be barred from future office holding uh, under the federal government. We're experiencing a moment of extreme political division in the United States. Misinformation, conspiracy theories, they flourish in echo chambers online. Russia used social media bots to try to change the outcome of U.S. elections. Do you think social media has been at the crux of this new chapter of American division? I certainly think it's been a very important element of it because it is a way where lies can be spread with great rapidity. <laughs> And what I think concerns us most as historians about this whole dispute over the legitimacy of this election is it's all based on lies. Um, you know, historians, uh, I heard somebody once refer to the project of being a historian is, is you have to have an imagination, but in a straitjacket, which is to say you cannot go beyond your evidence. And the fact that lies perpetrated and spread on the on social media have fostered this, uh, not only the events of January 6th, but uh, um, this continuing polarization, I think it is extremely worrisome. Some of the pro-Trump rioters at the Capitol on January 6th, they are known members of white supremacist groups and marched, some marched with Confederate flags through the Capitol. America has already had one civil war. Tell me more about how this time compares in your minds. I beg your pardon, how, how the time, this time compares to the to Civil the War? Civil, yes. Okay. Um, well, that's a, that's a great question. One way in which this does is that the, the, there was in the 1860s, in the 1850s and 60s, profound disagreement over what was real and what was at stake in public life. Um, and, the, and that seems to be the case now. Um, that was actually reinforced and fueled by conspiratorial thinking, which is also the case now. 
And the and the problem with conspiracy explanations is that because they don't depend on evidence, but simply on the repetition of of, um, of statements that people happen to agree on, that there's no way to refute them. So that the great risk now, in my view, is that th that we'll lose the common ground that was lost in the 1850s and with the election of, of Lincoln. And that was uh, very, very difficult to restore. And I, I frankly don't think that we're anything like as far along that road as, as Americans were in 1860, but it's a road that you don't want to be on. One, if I can just add in one of the other differences in the uh, era of the Civil War, the uh, differences of opinion tended to be located in different regions of the country um, from what it looks like the current conspiratorial thinking um, is spread throughout the country, which may make it harder to deal with. And we know that overt and systemic oppression based on race are deeply rooted in America's past and present. Do you think that there might be something historically different now in terms of America's reckoning with racial injustice? Well, I, I hope the Biden administration can can help with that. I don't think you can ignore um, the examples of racial injustice when you've got videos of, of, of people being uh, of, of African-Americans being assaulted by uh, the police and others. Um, I think the more we can um, deal with or place uh, diverse individuals, African-Americans and others in places of, of authority, that that will, that will help this. This isn't, a, you know, historians are better at dealing with the past than uh, predicting the future. Um, but I just hope we can overcome this. Representative Lauren Boebert tweeted a reference to 1776 on the morning of January 6th before the insurrection of the Capitol. Trump set up a 1776 commission which calls for schools to include more patriotic education and defend, that's in that's direct, a direct quote, and it defends America's early use of slavery. Historians have rebuked this and Biden has already disbanded the commission. Help us ground all of this in historical context. What kind of rallying cry is it to refer to 1776 right now? Oh, well, that's, um, it's, a, it's a move that's been common on the right uh, for a, quite a long time. And uh, it's, it entered mostly in my experience in, into the debate about 10 years ago uh, when the advanced placement testing in the schools was, was being uh, questioned as, as a, a, a terrible influence. What they were objecting to was multiculturalism um, and the and and the the notion that um, that pe that the, the that the American Revolution might have had different meanings for different people who were living at the time, and that was worth knowing. There was a, a sense in which the revolution had only one meaning, and that was that it, it gave us the ideals that uh, the country is founded on, and that's all we need to remember or should be aware of. That's an insidious principle, and is one that that I think is um, is is worth protesting against, because of course, um, as we see everywhere around us today, different things mean uh, the same thing can mean something quite different to, to different people. Um, the important thing is to discuss the differences, not to 
marginalize those who disagree with you. I want to thank you both so much for joining us today. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Avery. It was a pleasure. Virginia and Fred Anderson are CU Boulder history professors specializing in early American history. She holds 23 world records for jumping out of planes, and now Montrose's Melissa Lowe is the new national director of the United States Parachute Association, the self-governing group for the sport of skydiving. And she joins me now to talk about the growing sport and how she hopes to get more women involved. Hi, Melissa. Hello. You're a third-generation skydiver, so this is like a family tradition then. It is a family tradition. My grandmother used to tell me that it was in my blood, and now I believe her. <laughs> How old were you when you first skydived? I made my first jump when I was five years old. I did a tandem jump, and I did about 11 tandems by the time I turned 11 and did my first solo jump at 16. Wow. You mentioned tandem skydiving. That's where you're strapped into an instructor during the jump. So tell me about how your grandparents got into skydiving. My impression is that recreational skydiving hasn't been a sport that long. That's correct. My grandfather started us all. He was a paratrooper in the 82nd Airborne. And when he got out, he discovered sport parachute jumping and took his two sons with him, one being my dad. And as they say, the rest is history. So when you're a five-year-old, knowing that you're in a family of skydivers and you're about to make your first jump, are you nervous? Or is it something that you've been looking forward to like since you can remember? You know, I really don't have a recollection. The only thing I do remember was that it was my normal life. It was something that I went to every day. It was something that we were surrounded with because it was a family business. So it seemed very normal. I don't remember... I don't remember too much about it, except until I got older. When I got older, I remember being nervous. But my husband and I took our son out for his first jumps, and I got to relive a lot of that through him kind of resurrecting some feelings, which was an incredible experience. Wow, I love that. You have recently been chosen as the new national director for the United States Parachute Association. What do you hope to accomplish in that new role? There's a lot of things that I have, but on a broader scale, number one is for sure to help inspire and get more women into the sport of skydiving. And I think a lot of people don't understand skydiving, so I'd love to do more promotions of the sport outside of our industry to help, I guess, normalize it. Because a lot of people think of us as just adrenaline junkies and crazy people, but it's very far from the truth. We're very methodical. We're very meticulous with our gear and training, and we continue to evolve in the sport with technology and techniques and training methods, etc. So I'm hoping to, uh, not just for women, but for the sport as a whole, to inspire more people, if, whether it's just to learn about it, try it for the first time, or maybe pick up a new hobby or become a competitor. So giving some other people more like the experience that you had when you were a kid, where it was just a normal part of life. Exactly. <laughs> Why do you think that there is a gap in the number of men and women in the sport, that there are a lot more men? You know, this is a conversation we have a lot in the sport, and it hasn't been talked about a lot. 
I don't think a lot of people realize skydiving is still a young sport that it was only starting to become popular in the 70s and the 80s. And so we still have a lot to discover. If I were to just put my two cents on it, I think it's because women uh, priorities change with family and or have a different perception of danger and risk versus reward. But it's really hard to pinpoint exactly why, because the numbers state that 50% of men and 50% of women come out to do a tandem jump, but it's usually men who continue on with the sport. It's changed. We definitely have been growing the numbers of women in the sport, but it's something that we're still discovering and trying to figure out. Interesting. So you say that skydiving is a young sport. Can you give us a brief history of how skydiving has evolved? Because like you said, now it is much more than just parachuting out of a plane. Exactly. Well, it started really with the military. And once those people were getting out of the military, uh, sport parachute jumping started to become a thing. But it was mostly ex-military that were participating in the sport. And with the Uh, I think several years later, with the advent of the tandem, it allowed people to experience skydiving without having to invest all the time, training, equipment, etc. And so they were able to go and experience it in a short amount of time. And I think that exposure really helped. And then fast forward, we have social media that helped showcase our sport in a really positive light. Because before, people only knew about skydiving if there was an accident or a fatality. But now with social media, we've been able to control a little bit more of that dialogue to showcase how incredible this sport is, the amazing places we go, the competitions and the world records we get to do. And there are different disciplines in skydiving today, right? Yes, absolutely. So a lot of people don't understand that we... We think of skydiving as the Olympics, right? Because in the Olympics, there's a lot of different sports and disciplines within those categories of sports. And skydiving is the same thing. So we go from the traditional belly flying, belly to earth. We also have head down or head to earth where feet are up. We reverse that. We can also fly feet to earth, so head up. And we also have angle flying, wingsuiting, canopy piloting, canopy relative work, and then the disciplines within them are doing largest formations, doing world records, in competitions, and so much more. Tell me about the feeling of skydiving. Like, is it a feeling of flying or what keeps you doing it all of these years? Oh my goodness. You know, it's not just about the jumping. The jumping is what attracts most people to the sport. But really, it's the community of people and the places that you go, the amazing lifestyle that you get to live. So you actually hold 23 world records for skydiving. Tell me about some of those jumps and what makes them world records. Oh, my goodness. I love doing world record jumps because I thrive on challenge and putting together a world record is no easy feat. Most of these world records, I have been involved in the organization, the logistical part of it, in preparing for them. So we have to train people to get ready to have the skills to do such a feat. So it is a whole year to two years of preparation. So you start to meet people from around the world that are getting ready for this. And it's really exciting to welcome so many people to this next level journey. And then when you get to the events, 
you have to make sure you have everything arranged. You have all the aircraft, you have the oxygen, because when we go above a certain altitude, we have to wear supplemental oxygen so we don't get hypoxia. And then you have to engineer the formation of the planes, the formation of the skydive, put people in the correct positions. And it is a challenge. It is, you are working on your highest peak level energy to make this happen. And then you have to rally, right? Because if the jumps aren't going well, people start getting sad and bummed. Maybe they're not flying their best. So you have to be that leader that gets them to perform their best. And all we need to do it is be our best on that one jump all together for just a few seconds to create a world record. And that feeling of success is so addicting for me. (laughs) So I keep going on. So what makes these world records are the number of people who are connecting? Does that mean touching in the sky? Yeah, exactly. So we build these flower-shaped patterns. And depending on the discipline, depends on where you connect together. We call them grips. So when we fly head to earth, which is my favorite discipline, we connect holding hands. When you do the belly flying, uh, you can connect on people's legs and arms. Uh, So there's a lot, there's just a lot of different shapes that you can create per what discipline you fly. This sounds risky to have so many people jumping right next to each other, to have different crafts flying in the air. And at some point, all these people need to get far enough away to open their parachutes. Do you ever get nervous about your own safety or the safety of the people you're leading? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think this is where sportsmanship comes in because I never rest on my laurels that I have a lot of time in the sport. I have a lot of experience under my belt having so many world records that I train just as hard as anybody else, not just for my performance level, but because of safety. And I think it's a good testament because when people see me doing that, they want to train. So they're doing the same thing, trying to keep us all safe. But yes, absolutely. Do you have any plans to break any other world records soon? We do. In fact, a lot of them got postponed from last year. But the one that I'm really looking forward to is we are celebrating the 101st anniversary of the 19th Amendment, which is the women's right to vote. This fall in 2021, with a 101-way women's vertical world record. And I'm part of that organizing team. So we are trying to host camps and navigating through these uncertain times to try to prepare that for that feat this year. Before we go, I want to ask you to do something unusual. If I close my eyes and we imagine we're on your favorite kind of jump, a head-to-earth jump, what do we see and what are we feeling Oh my goodness. So everyone in the plane is really, really quiet. They're focused, visualizing on their jumps. They're not moving around a lot because the more you move, the more oxygen you expend and you want to keep your energy levels high. So everyone's still and focused and calm. And the only thing you can hear is the hum of the engines. The door opens and a rush of wind comes in. And then you just line up in the plane and you wait for everyone before you to jump out and you waste, you waste no time getting out when they jump out. And it's a burst of energy. You get out and you look up and you can see all of the planes and everyone jumping out. You have to be super skilled 
and you have to trust the engineering of the formation. And then you fly your fastest to get on level with the formation, pick up your grips, hold on, fly steady, calm, and strong. And then we have audible altimeters that alert us when it's time to break away from the formation. And another rush of energy comes through as you literally race the people next to you to get as far away as you can and you pull your parachute. And then you realize how you've been holding your breath. You catch your breath, but you look around because the skydive is not over. You have 100 plus people to watch out for. You navigate to the landing area. And whether you did the formation or not, it was the most exhilarating experience ever because you are creating history because no one before you has done what you just did. Melissa, that is thrilling. I'm gripping my microphone. That's so exciting. (laughs) Thank you guys so much. Melissa Lowe of Montrose was just elected National Director of the United States Parachute Association. She holds 23 world records in skydiving and hopes to grow the sport's visibility among women. That's it for Colorado Matters today. Thank you for joining us, and thank you to the team that helps bring this show to air. Carl Bielek. Ali Budner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Alexandra McMahon. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Avery Lill. Our theme was written and performed by Kip Kipper at Coop Studios in Boulder. You can get Colorado Matters anytime on demand. Just ask your smart speaker to play podcast Colorado Matters. This is CPR News.